and welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. Hey everyone, this is an exciting week. You may have noticed that there is new artwork for the podcast. This means that Context Matters is now available on all of your favorite podcast listening platforms. Woohoo! So now you can go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc., wherever you like to go, and download or listen to the episodes from there. And may I be so bold as to ask a favor of you? Will you go ahead and subscribe to this podcast and even leave a review? All of you who sent me emails to respond to the episodes that you already heard and that you loved, could you please just say so on the platforms? Uh, this will just really help, and it'll make context matters more easily findable when people search for it. Thank you. So last week, Dr. Schaefer Elliott and I followed the life of an object of antiquity from when it is found in the dirt to when it is possibly put in a museum. This week, we are going to continue this focus on domestic archaeology by discussing the footprint of a normal house and how even something as simple as the size and layout of a home can help us reconstruct our mental images about how ancient people lived and what their context was like. Because in modern architecture, many people have homes or offices with huge ceilings and big, gigantic windows, and none of those things are practical for ancient life. So archaeology really helps us understand the physical reality in ancient culture and then reimagine the real lives of people in that reality, which is just so different than our own. So as Cynthia describes the house, use your imagination to think about what issues like private space or community life were like in ancient societies. We then go on to talk about how an object like a figurine helps us interpret the life and religious beliefs of people who lived in a very different time and place than our own. And I just think that sometimes our assumptions of how people lived needs to be retooled just a little bit. What, what can we learn from the layout of a house? So the Israelite pillared house is how we typically talk about it and describe it. Um, but what can we learn about where we're uncovering artifacts within the household structure? Right, so there's typical layout of houses in um, Iron Age, Israel and Judah, Canaan. People have, it started out being called the Israelite house, but there's no way to say, oh, this is an Israelite house. I mean, because they're everywhere in the southern Levant, you know, in what was Canaan, Israel, Judah, they're yeah. all over the place. So um, I don't think we can use it as an ethnic marker. Um, some people call them the four-room house because when they first started noticing the pattern, it seemed like they all had four rooms. But we now know that they didn't all have four rooms. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they all had pillars. So maybe pillared house is a good term. I know Oded Borowski likes to use mm -hmm. that term. Um, I kind of just use the term Iron Age house mm. often. Um, but so... The basic layout, though, is that there is a room in the back of the house that runs the width of the house. And that's often called the back broad room because mm -hmm. it's a broad room. 
uh, and that in front of that room, towards the entrance of the house, there are oftentimes three, but sometimes two, uh, perpendicular rooms mm-hmm. running from that broad room house, and that those three rooms are often separated um, by pillars. Hmm. The pillars mm-hmm. either made out of stone or maybe they're made out of wood but had stone column bases. Um, and so that bottom floor of a house, I think they were two stories, and I think that uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether that central room of the bottom floor of the house, mm. if it was open or not. Right. So some people say, oh, it was a courtyard, and I think, I don't think it was a courtyard. I think it was just a basic square rectangular house trying to make use of all the space available that you could but that there was in my opinion what some people still call a courtyard but maybe a better term is forecourt because a forecourt is mm. in front of the house mm. um, so a four which court- is interesting because if you look at any archaeology book history of ancient israel anything oh. where there's a picture uh-huh. the picture is always within open-aired courtyard it's Sometimes. rare for me to see the ones where they cover that well, middle you s- room. You see some of the ones that have it cut out so you can see inside the house, mm, like yeah. the one in Steger and King's yeah. book, like the most famous one. Um, so like his, that one would have been, is shown as open so you can see it on the inside yeah. of the house. But when we are excavating, and some people will disagree with me, and that's fine, but sometimes they'll argue and say, well, there's usually an oven in that central room Mm. that it wouldn't have been covered because there's an oven there. And then I would point out that if you do ethnography, ethnographical studies and ethnoarchaeological studies in the Middle East, they have their houses, the central place where the oven is inside the house is covered hmm. and their houses are very similar to what we we find in ancient Israel that there's small windows you know very small windows on the first floor where some of that smoke could escape um, but that the roof and the beams in that central living room are blackened huh, because right. they would use the oven but it but most of the time if you think about it we often find ovens also in the forecourt in front of the house. Mm. So depending on the seasons is when you would use which oven. And you would probably share an oven with your neighbors or your family mm. that you're living mm. around. Um, so how often you would actually use that oven in the inside of your house may have only been like in the wintertime when you would use it to help heat your home. Right. Right? Yeah, if you're baking bread, why not just heat up everything around it right. as well? Right, exactly. Yeah. So I'm not convinced by the house being open. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think as far as, especially with the second floor being used as like the sleeping quarters and where maybe some light domestic chores would have occurred and then the f- roof would have been flat where they would still do more mm-hmm. domestic type chores. Like you see in Joshua when Rahab is hiding mm-hmm. the two spies, she hides them in the flax that she is drying on the roof of her house. So, um, or, you know, the woman of Schumann who makes the, the room right. for right. Elijah on the roof of her house. So that space, I mean, I think of these spaces as their houses as very utilitarian. I don't think having an open courtyard in the middle of a very yeah. subsistence level 
agriculturally and pastorally minded people, I don't think they would have found that very efficient. Right. Yeah. Which is sometimes hard for us to get our imaginations into their heads. I mean, it, that's impossible to do. Right. But we in the West live in houses with really tall ceilings and wide open spaces. And so we tend to think that is normal and it mm-hmm. feels good, but we don't think about the energy it would have taken to heat or cool off or to actually work and function within that kind of place. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and added to that is we have room, we have rooms with designated activities. Right. Right. So we have, some people might have a man cave (laughs) (laughs) or, um, you know, a craft room or a gym or a study, study. (laughs) you know, they have these rooms that have designated space. And I don't think they would have had that because when we look at these houses and we, and we do a spatial analysis, we see that these rooms are being used for all sorts of activities. Mm. Um, you know, maybe a room was used for storage, but it would have stored all sorts of things, you know, um, and that these houses had phases to them. So maybe they put up a wall to make a separate, like, room for... I don't know, maybe they needed a room for, they're doing more wine production and they wanted to keep the wine, you know, in a cooler spot. And so, you know, but that those smaller walls are, can, can come down and up and with some ease, I would imagine, but that the space changes and the mm. space changes with the needs of the household that lives there. Mm. You know, it's not going to be static and yeah. they're not going to not use a space just because, you know, that's somebody's man cave. Right. Or <laughs> right. You know? That one task that that's been assigned right. to it. It would be silly. Yeah. And, and I know, I, I mean, maybe I'm projecting, or maybe I'm, and I'm trying to use m- my studies to try to imagine what that would have been like. And that's how I imagine it. Now, I, I could be completely wrong, but if I'm thinking subsistence level people who are trying to be efficient and and trying to just survive there are things that we concern ourselves with today that probably would never have crossed their minds right what can we learn about what normal people in normal houses and normal villages what can we learn about their faith system like what they actually did for religion (laughs) because again in the bible it's it's a temple text. I mean, we have temple palace, we have wars, we have like these big nationalistic or even we're dreaming towards this end goal. Like this is the ideal way of living, but what can we tell about how they're actually living out what they believe? That's such a good question. And I think that's one of the things that we're all trying to understand better because yes, the, the text is very temple focused and then Torah-focused, of course, once the exile really comes into play, um, and the worship of, you know, Israel's worship of God has to adapt, right? So it goes from real temple-focused to Torah-focused, and then, you know, temple and Torah-focused again. But, um, but everyday people, you know, you get this, when you're reading the Old Testament and you get this kind of theology of Jerusalem, yeah. right? And how Jerusalem becomes, is seen in so many places as this, um, the centralized worship of God yeah. in the Lord in Jerusalem, and 
but if you read the rest of the texts, you that's not the case and especially and also with archaeology you realize that there were other local shrines that people went to to worship to worship god and to worship worship yahweh and to worship other gods um and so when i talk to my students about this and and even when i go talk to different groups and they think well israel worshiped you know yahweh and this is what they how they Mm -hmm. did it and i think have you read your Old Testament? Because if you've read the Old Testament, and I'm not making this up, you know, people always look at you when you say this, like, oh, she's just, you know, know, liberal academic or something like that. You know, it's like, no, you need to read the text because the text clearly says over and over and over and over again that Israel worshiped Yahweh and. Yeah. Now, whether they were or were not supposed to do that, that's not the question. The question is they did. Yeah. And they went to, I would imagine if they went to Jerusalem, it would only be, you know, maybe if they're lucky once a year or something, that would have been far away for most people. So most of their religious ritual would have been conducted in the home. You know, it's, and even going to a local shrine to do something, that would have been a journey and not something that if you're a farmer, you can afford to do yeah right it's like people who own a business today a small business owner they rarely go on vacation because they can't afford to close their business right or maybe they don't have someone to supervise it or something so um when i think of religious experience in ancient israel i do think you need to shift our attention back again to the home yeah and we find occasionally these model shrines, like the one I found, it found in domestic contexts where people would have used these model shrines to offer a libation offerings or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and who they're offering them to doesn't say use only for the worship of Yahweh right. on it. <laughs> right. You know, um, but then also these female figurines and even some of the other types of figurines, the zoomorphic figurines or the horse and rider figurines, mm. um, they're significantly found almost always in domestic contexts. Mm. You know, And the question comes back to, especially the female ones, there's a lot of discussion on, on how they were used. Um, some scholars have put forward that they were used to worship uh, Asherah. Right. Um, in particular regarding female reproductive activity. And so that female, the women of the household would have used those to, off, to offer prayers to Asherah that she would you know, help them conceive and have a safe pregnancy, have a safe birth, and that both baby and mother would survive, which is a, like probably a pivotal concern, monumental mm-hmm. concern for the women of the household. Yeah. Um, and then others have put forward that, you know, even the figurines themselves maybe are reflecting a stage in their female reproductive process. Hmm. Um, and so when we think about worship at home, I think it would have looked very different than the way... Because when you think of law, you always have to wonder, okay, is this law reflecting reality or is it reflecting ideology? Is it reflecting the way it is or the way they want it to be? Right. So how much would they have really known about 
oh, this is the proper way to do this and proper way to do that. Now, as time goes on, maybe they did, but, you know, what's really going on in, in the homes is, you know, a bit different than yeah. what you might imagine. Okay, I'm interrupting. There are several significant things Cynthia just mentioned. Did you catch what she was saying about the shift from a temple focus to a Torah focus to a temple and Torah focus? She's referring to how the events surrounding the Israelites forced them to change their culture. And this is even evident in the biblical text, even though we don't really talk about it all that much. So during the monarchy, after Solomon built the temple, society had the possibility of focusing everything around the presence of God at the temple in Jerusalem. But the Babylonians destroyed the temple and the people were taken into exile. So their context changed, which meant that the Israelites had to adapt to their changing circumstances. This is when synagogues, which are actually just a collection of people gathering together, not necessarily a building, but this is when synagogues developed, which placed a high value on every person in the community engaging the sacred text and not just the priests in the temple. Change happened again when some of the people ended up going back to Judea and rebuilding the temple. And so you had a community focus on study of Torah, but now you also had the temple that existed again in Jerusalem. <gasps> And oh, I could go on and on and on. So I, I fear going off topic. So we will have to engage more of this in future episodes. So back to what Dr. Schaefer Elliott was saying. There is a difference between finding an object like a female figurine and then understanding what significance that figurine had in life. So there are nuances in these conversations. Not all scholars agree about the conclusion did those figurines represent Asherah and concerns over dangerous childbirth? Did they represent a stage and the reproductive role of women? Were they lucky charms for fertility? We still have just so many questions. Can we tell who is using the figurines in the home? I mean, or we just say it just is the family members because there's no way to actually say who is kind of in charge or what happens is that that's just kind of a vague guess yeah I mean because it doesn't say this figurine belongs to right. Miriam or whoever you yeah. know we don't have anything like that but if if we're if some of the theories that I just mentioned are are kind of close to the reality then I would imagine it would have been the women who would have used them because mm -hmm. they're the ones whose reproductive role was, right. you know, so significant to not only their survival, but their, their household survival. Right. I mean, if your daily life consists of just surviving, you know, you, the fertility of your land, the fertility of your animals and the fertility of your people are utmost concern. Right. And so I can see why, I mean, I think a lot of these ideas about these figurines are very interesting, um, and a lot of work has been done on them um, by other people, you know, Aaron Darby and Carol Myers and you know, all sorts of people, um, looking at them and, and wondering, okay, what were yeah. they used for and, and why and stuff. But I think if, if those theories hold any weight to them, then I would say 
that you know the women were probably mostly concerned yeah. with them. Yeah, it's interesting. There's even a history of archaeology, the practice of archaeology, especially in the land mm-hmm. of the Southern Levant, mm-hmm. um, because we have this sacred text that is associated with it. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of. Correct me when I start going astray, but there was a lot of early archaeology where it was people trying to dig in order to prove the Bible is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were archaeologists who kind of rebelled against that and kind of went totally off, mm-hmm. like it's completely separate. Um, and so what do we do with this sacred text and archaeology? Like, How would you describe how the field is now as we try to balance like is the bible even helpful in the field of archaeology when archaeology is meant to just try to figure out the material Mm -hmm. remains of culture so Mm -hmm. what role does the bible play in that yeah you're you're right historically archaeology related to ancient israel has been very biblical focused bible focused but in 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 fairness i don't think I don't think it even crossed their minds for the most part, you know, that that it could be that the biblical text could be more nuanced mm. than we that they thought, mm. you know, that I think they saw, okay, this is, you know, you know, ancient texts and here's what they say and let's go figure find it. You know, and, right. And I know yeah. of course, you know, historical critical method was there and everything, but I don't I don't think it was to be fair to those people, it wasn't really on their mind. But now that, you know, we've done a lot more work since then and people, like you said, you have other people who went totally opposite direction and completely just disregard the histor- any historical reliability within the mm-hmm. biblical text. They would say that there is none whatsoever. And then you've got the people on the other hand who right. dig with their Bible on one hand right. and their trowel in right. the other. I think I think both are extreme. Right. Yeah. And of course, you know, somewhere if we're honest with ourselves, you know, most of us are comfortable with some place in the middle. Yeah. Um, I think um, archaeology is its own discipline, and it should be. Biblical studies is its own discipline, and it should be. But that. I really like interdisciplinary work. Yeah. And I think if you're trying to understand something, you need to use everything at your disposal. And of course you need to use it wisely and critically um, and that you're not going to just say, oh, well, it says here that, you know, Solomon did this and this looks like it could be Solomon. So there, you know, you right. don't, you don't do that type of stuff. We do it well. We study it well. We use other disciplines to help yeah. us understand ancient Israel. So I, I don't ever say disregard texts. I mean, I would say use texts. Definitely use the biblical text. Use other ancient Near Eastern texts. Yeah. They're all important. But also be aware that all texts, especially ancient texts that we're studying, were written by elite urban men mm-hmm. who are have just like everything else, has a motivation for being written. I mean, nothing gets written ever, even today, that doesn't isn't motivated by something. Right. Right? right. So what is it you're trying to communicate? Mm-hmm. Why are you trying to communicate it? What are you including? What are you excluding? You know, basic historiography type questions. Yeah. Um, so I think all those things are super important. And then archaeology as well. You know, archaeology is great because we're just, we're uncovering what they left behind. Yeah. But that's just it. It's what they left behind. What aren't we finding? 
what has been destroyed, what what did they take with them wherever they went, you know, or, or what eroded, you know. So yeah. we, in all instances, we're getting part of the picture. Yeah. And if we want a complete picture, as much of a complete picture as we could possibly have, I say you use everything at your disposal. Yeah. Iconography, ancient Near Eastern texts, zoo archaeology, bioarchaeology, you know, classical field archaeology, uh, classic field archaeology, um, biblical studies, theo- I mean, theology, to, depending on if you're talking about theology of ancient Israel, yeah. not necessarily theology today. Um, excuse me. I think it's all important and, and use what you can. Yeah. Yeah, but you do it wisely and critically. Is there room for amateurs to join the table, and how do they do that? So, you know, all of those are really significant fields that you talked about where people are majoring in that one field. So how does that become accessible to normal people? Yeah, I would, and I would say this with any biblical scholar or even theologian who is wanting to use mm-hmm. archaeology or even just the data. Maybe they're reading something. I tell every biblical scholar I know, every theologian, that you should go on a dig at least once. Because going on a dig and, and seeing the way a dig actually, field experience mm-hmm. actually works, field archaeology actually works, is very different than when you're just reading you know, the article that's talking right. about one small aspect of it that archaeology is just as subject to interpretation as anything else is. There's so many times that we're in the field and we're talking about what this thing is or what the phase is, and you've got three archaeologists there and you've got like seven and a half different opinions. Right. (laughs) You know? So it's not as black and white as as people like to imagine it is and so to go on a dig and whether you're an expert in a different field or whether you are a lay person who's just really interested we take anybody (laughs) yeah anyone who wants to move dirt is totally welcome that's right I mean you're considered a volunteer but you're paying to be there so (laughs) um and it is hard work, and I think to go and to do it once and to appreciate how much hard work goes yeah. into just uncovering all this pottery, you know, yeah. or, or the things that we people take for granted when they're reading those journal articles or reports, that the work that goes behind it is, yeah. is a lot. But at the same time, you're the first person to see and uncover something that hasn't been seen and touched in thousands of years. Right. You know, and just what a privilege it is to be part of a very large research project yeah. that's helping us understand ancient Israel and Judah better. Yeah. So I always encourage people to do it, whether they are interested in doing it again, most likely not, <laughs> but a lot, sometimes people do, and they are biblical scholars or theologians who who come on the dig as much as they can. Yeah. And it's it takes all sorts. Yeah. I've met a few retired people who then think, oh, well, this is fun. I'll go hang out in Israel. And it's true. It's like they find one thing. Like they were the brushstroke that uncovered a bracelet. And they can't help but go back every year yeah. because they just, it's, 
because a, a crucial find with an inscription or a seal, it could just be one brush stroke yeah. lower than where you're at. You yeah. never know. Exactly. Yeah. And if you love history, yeah. you know, this is usually going on a dig. People who love history usually really enjoy it. I mean, it is really hard work when you're doing ancient Near Eastern archaeology because you're, you are, you're, if you're working on a tell, you're moving so much dirt. And that can be, some people romanticize it so much to where they think, oh, I'm just going to sit there with a brush and do this. And it's like, no, you're going to be standing with a pickaxe most of the time. <laughs> and no matter how many times I tell my students, this, you're getting up early, it's going to be hot, you're going to be doing manual labor. And no matter how many times you tell them, it's always a shock. <laughs> I don't know why they don't believe me. <laughs> but it's like, I'm, okay, fine, don't believe me, but you'll be in for yeah. a bit of a shock. And then yeah. they get used to it, and then they get they get into the hang of it, and they understand the methodology. And, and yeah. then by the third week, they start saying, so I've done this, now should I do this? And I say, yes, you've got yeah. it, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and you taking time to speak with us. And thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. If any of you are interested in studying biblical context or in participating in an archaeological dig during the summer, visit the show notes from this episode on the Context Matters page of my website, which is www.narrativeofplace.com. I don't know what is going to happen with these summer digs, given the outbreak of the COVID-19 virus, but you can still explore which sites are being dug and even potentially what they are in the midst of discovering. In all of the episodes of Context Matters, there's been a common thread around the experience with place or people that changes how we think about those around us or how we understand history. So I thought this was the perfect time to bring in a conversation with Dr. Rob Ribby. He specializes in experiential education. Next week, Dr. Ribby will define what experiential education is and then talk about the ways in which we learn differently when we holistically engage our body, movement, mind, and emotions in a situation. How do we become learning-centered instead of content-centered? Not all of our learning systems are really set up to take advantage of the power of experience. And sometimes the facilitator has to teach the student how to learn in this way. What's interesting is when our grad students come to Honey Rock, we actually don't start class for like two weeks. We actually have two weeks where we are bringing them into the environment, bringing them into the process, bringing them into the community. So... Within five days of arriving here, they do a three or four day wilderness trip in community with their professors. Um, and it, it, it really is a teaching people how to live and to be and to learn in a completely different way. Dr. Ribby focuses on outdoor adventure and experiences, but what he shares is similar to what Cynthia was saying about the value for anyone who is interested in archeology, span or even just in using archeological data to go and experience a dig. Thank you to Mindalyn Young and Michelle and David Kaufman and all the rest of my Patreon supporters. You make the production of these podcasts possible and I'm continually grateful for your support. Thanks too to Peter Lordson at Sycamore Sound. 
Feel free to contact me with follow-up questions or comments and explore my website to see some of the pictures of the objects we talked about in this episode. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating for this podcast. Thanks for being here. See you next week. Bye.